So Justin, social media, something about Facebook has allowed me to not only have fun and and go back and forth and, you know, have cute little quips with people, but it's really established very strong, deep relationships. And one of my very first relationships on Facebook was with a guy named Rick Smolke from Addison, Illinois. And I don't know how we connected. All I know is he was seeing what I was doing with women who write at the very beginning. This is when I first started. This is going back eight years ago. And he immediately said, I want to help you. Rick Smolke is a commercial printer. He also does personal printing, you know, from business cards to CD to packaging to signs, calendars. He does all of that stuff. But then I hired him. He did the galleys for my book. He did my bookmarks. He did my signature plates. There, He is my go-to guy. And what I will say about quick impressions is what sets them apart from every other printer is the customer service. They are just the most amazing people. They have graphic artists on there that'll help you design your card. Their prices will match any wholesaler on the internet. They'll get it shipped to you. Their prices are the best. The relationship you will have with them is the best. So what I'm going to suggest is if you have anything you need done, whether it's for your, they do, they do professional football teams. They do huge corporations, the printing. They do huge jobs, but they no job is too small because they're really people. They're people people. They're how does, what's that expression? They're people persons. And so if you have anything you need done, please call Quick Impressions. In, they're right outside of Chicago, Quick Impressions. And please ask for Rick Smolke and tell him that Vicky sent you. And I promise he's going to take, they are going to take such good care of you and match any price you'll get anywhere. Quick Impressions, Rick Smolke. And you can find them at quickimpressions.com. And that's quick, Q-U-I-K, no C, quickimpressions.com. Save the C for the Rick and ask for Rick. Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken. Vicki's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicki. So Justin, tonight's guest is Ileana Douglas. And I actually met her in a ladies room, uh, which is, and you know, I'm a really, I'm, I'm a shameless person. I actually, <laughs> I, I, I asked her to do my women who write in the ladies room of the premiere of, uh, one of the seasons of her easy to assemble, um, which is really embarrassing. We were the only two people in the be- in the in the ladies' room, and it's like Eliana. I'm like a really big fan, and I'm friends with. And and out in the lobby was like Craig Bierko and a few other people that we both knew. And I was like, yeah, and I'm friends with them, and they did my literary salon, Women Who Write. And oh, I would love if you would do it. And she looked at me like I was crazy and a bit of a homicidal maniac but she smiled and she said oh yeah sure okay (laughs) oh my god and it ended up taking me like another I don't know four years to get her to the living room but I'm nothing if not persistent (laughs) and so I kept at it we got I got her she actually did women who write oh my gosh this past February and she was fantastic worth waiting for but anyway yeah so we were in the ladies' room, and, and it was the premiere of her Easy to Assemble, which was this great web show. Ileana was one of the very first people to monetize on the internet in a big way. IKEA was her sponsor, and they worked it into, what is that called when um, you, you use a product placement, right? Um, she, they had product placement in the show 
they would build IKEA things and stuff. So the commercials were sort of inter were part. IKEA was part of the show. And she made a lot of money and she was able to pay her actors real money and she was able to pay the directors and everything, you know, I, I don't, maybe she directed all the episodes. But anyway, everybody got paid real money. And as a result, she had people like Fred Willard and Ed Bagley and Craig Bierko and all these great people on the show with her. It was a hysterical series. It ran for a number of seasons. Ileana received an Emmy nomination for her work on Six Feet Under. She's had recurring roles on Ugly Betty, Entourage, Chasing Life and Welcome to Sweden. Ileana created the before-mentioned multi-award-winning web series, Easy to Assemble. She's the executive producer and co-stars in the web series, The Skinny. She wrote, produced, and starred in the pilot's Confessions of a Movie Lover for the IFC Network, Ileana Rama for the Oxygen Network, and Celebrity Garage Sale for the A&E Network, as well as executive produced films Grace of My Heart, Search and Destroy, Life Without Dick, Kingdom Come, Chez Upshaw. She has written, directed, and starred in a number of short films and directed a documentary called Everybody Just Stay Calm about the travails of movie making. Ileana is currently the host of Turner Classic Movie Series Trailblazing Women. She also hosted the TCM Friday Night Spotlight Series Second Looks. Her recently dropped I Blame Dennis Hopper received a booklist starred review Kirkus, Elle Magazine, Reader's Prize Pick, People's Magazine Pick, Best New Books, and Entertainment Weekly's Best Books of 2015 list. It is a thrill to welcome Ileana Douglas. Ileana Douglas, welcome to The Road Taken. I'm so, I'm so thrilled that you're here. Thanks so much for doing this with us. Thank you. I'm thrilled to, to be here. Okay, so let's go back for a minute. Okay, so... I had this misconception of you because of who your grandfather is, Melvin Douglas, that you were raised in this show business environment and had a silver spoon in your mouth and you kind of just walked your way into show business, which is not the reality at all. So can you tell, can you tell us a little bit about your, I mean, it's in the book. I, I want people to read the book and they'll get a much rich, richer version by doing that. But can you tell us a little bit of your story? So you're a little girl, you have this famous grandfather, but you're not living a Hollywood life. Right. Well, it, it begins with, you know, I don't, of course, I'm too young. I don't know that who my grandfather is, right. but, I, you know, basically my, my parents loved movies and they went to see, you know, movies and um, they went to see, uh, which was, you know, part of the time, uh, the, the film um, Easy Rider. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of changed their life. My father ended up you know, leaving his job and convincing my mom to start a commune called the studio. And, um, you know, I filled it with a bunch of hippies and goats and had a band called 40 Acres and a Mule. And, you know, at first, all of this stuff to a little kid seemed like a lot of fun. It was uh -huh. a circus, you uh -huh. know. But as the months and years went by, you know, all my parents' money what was being put into this dream of this commune called the studio. Mm -hmm. And we became poor. Where were and you? Where was the commune? This was in, uh, on the, uh, the East Coast in, uh, in uh, rural uh, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. but, um, oh, they must have loved you in Connecticut. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not the best place hey. to place your commune. Yeah. <laughs> but... So, you know, as my parents 
because it was all out of my control. They were totally into this. You know, and this was also the times. This was 1969, right. mm-hmm. 1970s, you know, and people, you know, what the message of the movie that they picked up was this idea, which we don't, which we no longer exist. The idea that one movie can not only change their life, mm-hmm. but it changed my life. Mm-hmm. As a result, yeah. That's what's incredible about it. Mm-hmm. And that's why movies are so important. What, what did your father do before the commune? Uh, he was in uh, arts funding, and my mom was you know, was a housewife. They had moved to Connecticut, essentially, and you know, to live the American dream. Like a pretty straight existence. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know... My mom was gonna was in the garden club, and there, and all of that slowly got stripped away. Mm-hmm. You know, because we you couldn't afford it, and so uh, this this re- realization for me of like we don't have any food anymore. Mm-hmm. We can't you can't run the hot water. It's you know it's this realization of like I don't want to be poor. You know, and then the more the more the effort that the commune took, the more, you know, my parents just weren't available. And so then when my, when I, you know, made this realization with my grandfather that my grandfather was a movie star. <laughs> he was like a famous movie star. I was like, I think I want to be in that movie. How old were you when you made that realization? I was about five when I, when my, we were staying with my grandfather and they, everybody was going to the drive-in, mm-hmm. and I wanted to go to the drive-in, but they said, you're, you're too young, you can't go to the drive-in. And I didn't even know what the drive-in was, but my grandfather said, okay, you're going to go to the drive-in. And so I drove with him in his car and saw the movie uh, Romeo and Juliet. And again, mm-hmm. I only really remember it in pieces, but mm-hmm. I remember, like, the music and the nudity <laughs> and the idea of, like, being with my grandfather. And so I think an idea was formed that night mm-hmm. of kind of who my grandfather was to me, that he was my protector, mm-hmm. that I, I wanted to be with him. And so more and more, he started taking, I think, an active interest in me. How did he feel? How did he feel about what your folks were doing? I think that, you know, because it was the times, everybody was sort of trying to adjust to the times. And the movies are a reflection of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if he was disapproving of that, you know, I wasn't overtly aware of it, mm-hmm. but I was subtly aware of it in the sense that when he came to visit and, you know, I had my parade of animals and, you know, my, my mom had a close, an old, you know, circular clothesline and I had, had all my animals tied to the clothesline <laughs> and I'm showing up my parade of animals. And, you know, I think there was a sense on his part of like, um, I think I need to intervene, you know, <laughs> uh, with these people. And, and as I got older, you know, it was kind of like, I mean, I would ask, you know, I would, I would write letters to both of my grandparents, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think it's odd when a kid asks for a sleeping bag because it's freezing in the house <laughs> oh, God. or a present. That's Aww. maybe a signal to the grandparents that, you know, that they should step in. And my grand, and I was very close to, all of my grandparents, 
but the, but you know they what I got from them mm-hmm. was I just wanted to be around my grandparents because at their houses I had food I could watch television oh my gosh. I got nice clothing mm-hmm. it was I was like you know so when I came back to the commune mm-hmm. I was the one who said I don't want to live I don't want to be a hippie I want to be I want to be living in New York. Mm. I, you know, I, that's all I wanted to do. Well, you know, probably from about age eight on was move to New York, you know, and live with my, live with my grandfather. Were you going to, to, to traditional school when you were living in the commune? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, yeah, I would say, you know, I mean, you were going to, you were going to public school and did you, did you know, were you aware that your life was different than everybody else's? Was there shame? Was there any shame? Did you have shame or did that not enter into it? I mean, I was aware of it. Did you have, did you connect with any, did you have any close friends? Did you, or or, did you have any significant relationships with any of these so-called normal kids? No, all no. my friends were, I mean, then they weren't friends. All my uh, relationships mm-hmm. consisted of men who looked like Dennis Hopper <laughs> and, lived, and lived at the commune. Mm-hmm. You know, there were, the, there were the very cute hippie girls, and, you know, they made pottery and smoked pot and, you know, did music and... And did their thing, and then there were there were the guys that were musicians, and mm-hmm. they were also very creative. You know, there were musicians that talking about music. You know, that gave me we couldn't afford. I'll give you an example of like this is why the book is called I Blame Dennis Hopper. We were so poor that like I couldn't afford forty fives, mm-hmm. so I would take the forty fives from the hippies mm-hmm. and pretend they were my forty fives when I would go play with the girls with my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So if my girlfriend had all the current music, I'd be like, hey, this, uh, this Rolling Stones, Get Off of My Cloud is pretty good. You know, I was listening to the music that the hippies were listening to. Right. So what seemed like shameful and embarrassing, of course, you grow up and you realize, oh, It was my God, really cool. <laughs> I thank, thank God for Dennis Hopper. Yeah. And so... You know, and then everything starts to really, really become crazy when I work with, you know, I grow up, I become an actress, and not only do I work with Dennis Hopper, but I work with Peter Fonda, Mm -hmm. where he plays my guru, Dave, in Grace of My Heart, Mm -hmm. and Dennis Hopper plays my father figure type lover in Search and Destroy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at that point, it's like, it's all, you know, it's just what I write about. Sometimes it seems like, you know, your life is a movie. I, I live my life as if it's a movie. And when it's a movie I don't like, I, you can always just change it. And I think, it's a, I think it's a very healthy way to live sometimes to pretend your life is a movie. Eliana, did you get sexualized early because of this environment? Or is that too personal a question? But I'm, I mean, I did. I grew up in the, in the 60s and got sexualized very young. I would imagine being exposed to all of that. What, what effect did it have on you personally? The effect it had on me personally was seeing everything at a very young age mm-hmm. um, made me actually more uh, afraid and concerned and nervous and mm-hmm. shy. 
mm-hmm. you know, because I saw a lot of, like, drug use. I saw a lot of, like, flamboyant kind of crazy behavior, and it scared me. And I think that it, I put, I just put my nose to the grindstone in terms of work, of, like, I'm just going to, to work. However, in that era, you know, when I started early on doing theater and, and things like that, it was extremely commonplace, as I always say, you know, I called it casual groping. Like, <laughs> it just was an era of, like, where that was okay, mm-hmm. and you had to navigate around adults very, very carefully. But nobody ever had a talk with you, like, hey, you need to stay away from so-and-so. Did you feel safe in that environment? Were you safe? Were, were boundaries ever uncomfortably trespassed? No, in the, um, uh, not in the, in no, the no, not in the commune at all, because I was a little kid, but when I was, you know, but going out and doing um, uh, theater and dinner theater, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I write about it all the time. It was like a, a constant, you know, if you're going to be in theater and be a young woman, you're going to be preyed upon. Mm-hmm. And that just was a constant, that was something constant that I dealt with, you know, with my friends who were in theater, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, it just was a, you know, <laughs> we were constantly not saying, you were asking me about like what the, what stories did not make the book. Yeah, yeah. And one of the stories that, one of the stories that did not make the book oh, yay. was I was in a, region, a regional theater doing uh, in the chorus of a show called Gypsy, mm-hmm. and I was invited to this you know private party that one of the big wigs behind the theater you know was throwing, and my friend and I who were you know we were about fifteen and we were like. We were so excited that we got invited to this adult party because mm-hmm. we thought it meant that how great actresses we were. <laughs> and we went, and it was like, you know, they were they were doing cocaine and showing stag films and <laughs> turned into an orgy. And we were like, there was no cell phones. We were, you know, we were stuck at this house. And, you know, we didn't know what to do. We, like, ran outside and hid in the woods until her sister came and picked us up. And so you got through that whole time. You did not, be, you didn't start doing drugs. You never went through like that episode of your life. Did you not have an episode like no. that? Wow. No. What, when you see people, for me, mm-hmm. I saw people from when I was a very young age, you know, tripping on acid mm-hmm. in, in my kitchen while my mom tried to maintain her Italian Catholic like. I'm just going to stir the tomato sauce. <laughs> your, your mother wasn't doing drugs? She wasn't tripping with them? No. No, no, no. My mom was very straight on this very straight and narrow. She kept us together. I mean, she was really the heroine mm-hmm. of the entire, you know, experience. Did your mom do this for your father? Was it something that she wanted to? Do you think she had shame around it? I mean, what, what was it like for her, do you think? I think my mom used to write her own book. <laughs> I can only state my opinion. They, neither one uh, has, you know, doesn't, you know, they they don't have as strong as an opinion as I do about the whys 
the odyssey of of this. Okay, so you, so you're in this commune, and then what happened? At, at what point did that life change, and what did it go to next? Um, well, my father my my father eventually left, mm-hmm. and then the commune just sort of you know started to fall into disrepair. But I was at that point I was you know very much focused on a relationship with my grandfather mm-hmm. and wanting to follow in his footsteps. And he, in the, you know, he invited me to the set of the movie being there, mm. which was a seminal experience for me, mm-hmm. you know, watching him work, watching Peter Sellers, mm. sitting next to the director, Hal Ashby. Again, it just created an indelible impression mm-hmm. in my mind that this is where I want to be. I don't want to be anywhere else but on a film set. And so I just set my sights on doing that. I'm following in my, my grandfather's footsteps. I wanted to please him. He was my father figure. My parents were in their own movie, mm-hmm. you know, and I needed to be in my movie, my own movie. And I, you know, I knew that somehow being on a film set, being in show business, was what I wanted to do. What's interesting is I started writing movie reviews, and that was my first way in. How old were you when you started doing that? I was about 14, mm-hmm. and I, you know, my grandfather started sending me books about movies, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to impress him. So, you know, I would call him up, you know, we'd talk on the phone, I'd say, well, you know, I was reading about Dorothy Parker in the Algonquin Circle, and he just was amazed. Like, why would this kid be interested? <laughs> and I, the reason I found Dorothy Parker was through Groucho Marx. Was uh-huh. The first person I was obsessed with was Groucho Marx. <laughs> through Groucho Marx, I, I read all the books. I found Harpo Marx. Through Harpo Marx, I found Alexander Wolcott, Dorothy Parker, the Algonquin Roundtable. And I think my grandfather was just, you know, fascinated Mm -hmm. that I had this incredible interest for, you know, for this stuff. And I, so I would write funny letters. I'd try to pretend I was Dorothy Parker and I'd write him these funny letters and he would be so encouraging and tell me how funny I was. So originally I was, you know, in my mind, in my childlike mind, I was like, I just want to be in show business. But I wanted to be in show business, like circa 1934, Mm -hmm. living at the Garden of Allah. (laughs) Uh, That didn't quite exist anymore. But but eventually, you know, theater through talks with him, it was like, all right, theater is going to be the way in. Okay, so how did you how did you make that transition? What how did that start for you? That that start was again like just completely crazy and like a movie, I had, uh, I looked in the paper, I was looking in the paper and they had this little uh, advertisement for inner city youth that lived in Hartford to mm-hmm. audition for a new program that they were starting called the Hartford Stage Company Youth Theater. And you have to live in Hartford, you have to be in the, you know, inner city. Mm-hmm. And I didn't live in Hartford, I wasn't in the inner city, but the only thing in there, it said, you know kids from high-risk backgrounds. And I was like, I'm from a (laughs) high-risk background. I need to get in this group. So, you know, that's the kind of moxie 
you need. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where that comes from. I can't explain it. But I was like, I saw that ad in the paper and in movies that I love. What happens in movies? Girls see things in the newspaper and they point <laughs> at it and they go, that's for me. I'm going to get that job. And I really think that there was maybe a part of me that believed something like that could happen. And so with that ad, I found a family that lived in Hartford. I said, can I use your address to pretend I live there? And that's where the letter came in. And, and I, you know, I went and I auditioned and I, my audition was pretty bad because I had learned, uh, to sing like Liza Minnelli from the (laughs) cabaret, from the cabaret record, but I'd never brought the sheet music. Uh, I, you know, I just, I didn't know that the record and the key she was singing in was different than the sheet music. So I went in like filled with moxie, ready to do my best Liza Minnelli. (laughs) And I started to sing, you know, maybe this time I'll be, I was doing my Liza. And the piano is like, he's just playing louder and I'm looking at him and I'm going up and down. It was like a nightmare. I'm going up and down the scale and he suddenly stops and he says, you're singing in the wrong key. And I don't know where I got the wherewithal, the guts to say this, but I said, I'm singing in the right key. The key is Liza and you're in the wrong key. Yes. In your and book. the whole group of people <laughs> behind the table, they lost it. They laughed for five minutes. And I was like, okay, that went well. And then I just sort of like stood my ground like, I am not leaving this room, you know. And then a little bit of luck, the musical director, like they kind of looked around like, okay, kids got moxie, but... She's got to be able to sing. And so the music director, he got up and he said, he said, you know, you were actually pretty good at the beginning. So why don't you sing and I'll follow you? Uh So I started to sing again and then he started to play. And then he said, you're in the key of C, by the way. And I said, yeah, like I said, key of Liza. Another huge laugh, you know, and I sang that song, you know, like I had done it 300 times alone in my bedroom, Mm -hmm. and I walked out of the room, and, you know, two weeks later, I got a letter saying I made the company. Fantastic. it was astonishing, because I was in that company for three years. Wow. And it was, and I learned everything I could before, you know, moving to New York to really start my career for real. But it was the greatest early experience I had of my life. Well, so this is after high school then? No, no. When I was 15, I got my own apartment. How did you do that? You were making enough money at the theater to afford your own apartment or was somebody helping you? Yes. No, I was, I rented a room. I had, I rented a room with these two guys and uh, it was an incredibly crazy experience because once I got in the group, you know, and it was a summer group. The first summer, mm-hmm. you know, I was 15. And then when I 
turned 16, I moved to Hartford permanently. But the first summer um, that I worked there, because it was a summer program, it wasn't a year-round program. Mm -hmm. But no, the first summer I had to rent a room. And I lived with these two older guys, one of whom I reconnected with on the book tour. Wow. We had a lot of laughs about that. Um, But it was a crazy experience, you know, because there should have been no reason I should have had my own apartment. But it was when I had my own apartment, too, that I was in contact with my grandfather quite a bit, Mm -hmm. you know, because I was doing what he wanted me to do, which was start in theater, Mm -hmm. go to movies. So, you know, I was thrilled. I was was absolutely, um, you know, thrilled to be to be doing theater. Of course, what was funny was that his idea, one of the, uh, we did musicals, and one of the musicals we did was called The Boys from Syracuse. Mm -hmm. This is a Rodgers and Hart musical. Mm -hmm. And so he called me and said, I've set up a a conversation with you and Mrs. Richard Rogers. Oh, my God. So she can tell you, all about, you know, the show Boys from Syracuse. I mean, can you imagine for no. a teen-year-old kid? <laughs> that was his idea of helping me. You know, people talk about, like, well, did he financially help you? You know, of course he, you know, sent me money and supported me as grandparents, too. Mm-hmm. But you kind of can't beat being in a teenage musical and getting to to Mrs. Richard Rogers <laughs> about, about your part. That was pretty cool. Okay, so now, okay, so you've done this. You've had three years of this. Do you fin- did you finish school? Uh, yeah, I barely, I barely finished and, uh, and was living in Hartford and then moved from Hartford to New York. Okay, so you come to New York, and what, what happens when you get to New York? Um, I, I was, went to a, you know, an acting school mm-hmm. and I was supposed to be, I was supposed to move in with my grandfather and that was all kind of arranged and I was really looking forward to that. And then unfortunately he passed away. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of scramble and I, since I had made the commitment in my mind, like I'm going to New York, like this is it. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I didn't have a place to stay or school to go to, because originally I was going to go to Juilliard. Mm-hmm. He was going to pay for me. Um, and he'd set up, uh, during the movie uh, Ghost Story, mm-hmm. he'd set up, which is another crazy story. <laughs> and I said I, he, I said I wanted to go to Juilliard, and he said, fantastic, I've, I've set up an audition uh, for you with John Houseman. It'll <laughs> take place on the set of Ghost Story. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually had to go into John Houseman's trailer wow. and do monologues for him <laughs> as a precursor for my Juilliard. Yeah. Wow. Talk about intimidating. Wow. But when he, so when he passed away, I didn't, you know, we were poor. I, I didn't have any money to go to Juilliard, mm-hmm. but I was, I had it in my head of like, you're going to New York. Even if you just go there for a month, and so I went to um, a school, and, you know, to another school, an acting school, just to get me to New York. Mm-hmm. And I only ended up going there for a year. I didn't end up getting asked back. Uh, but I was in New York. I made it to New York. Mm-hmm. And from there, 
from that acting school, I went to another acting school, which was the Neighborhood Playhouse. And then that is what really changed my life. So, yeah, so the, I was going to ask you, so what, what do you think, what do you think, Ileana, was the defining moment for you where success met talent and ambition? I think Cape Fear. How, how did you get Cape Fear? How did that happen? I auditioned for it. Yeah, even though I was in a relationship with the director, mm-hmm. you know, I still had to audition for it because it was Robert De Niro and, mm-hmm. you know, he really had a big say and he, he had to make sure there was chemistry. And so I auditioned for the casting director, Ellen Lewis, and then I came back and auditioned for Marty and Robert De Niro and we did some improvs and I got in the movie, but a lot of the, my part was going to be you know, improvisational. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a lot of my own part. I mean, well, Wesley Strick, who is the screenwriter, mm-hmm. said, you have more notes than Robert De Niro. <laughs> but, you know, at that point, as a newbie, I didn't know that you weren't not supposed to write your own part. <laughs> like, I'd always, I was like, what's the matter? You, you, you tweak it, right? You make it better. Because I came from an improv background, mm-hmm. and I came from the neighborhood playhouse. How did you meet Marty? How did how did that start? Oh, I I uh, this was in uh, where I was working for a, a film publicist named Peggy Siegel. Mm-hmm. So I yeah I was in New York and I got out of acting school and I was in a theater group with a bunch of people from the Actors Theater of Louisville mm-hmm. and uh, one of the guys in the group worked for the director named Frank Perry, wonderful director. He did um, David and Lisa. Oh, and, I love um, David and Lisa. Kier Dulé, yeah, yeah. Diary of a Mad Housewife, Mommy mm-hmm. Dearest, The Swimmer. Anyway, um, he he worked for Frank Perry, mm-hmm. and Frank Perry had an office next to this very powerful film publicist named Peggy Siegel. Remember her? And he recommended me for the job because mm-hmm. he said, oh, she's got an encyclopedic knowledge of film. Mm-hmm. And I went in and I, I got the job, and the, my literally like my first, day of work, you know, like, it's like a movie. It's like one of those 50s movies where, you know, I'm walking into the Brill building and I could hear, dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun, I'm going to be discovered. I guess. It was like every day I went to work, I was dressed like, you know, I didn't have any money, but, you know, you kind of put yourself together with thrift store type things and you know, I was like, I'm going to be discovered. You know, I know it. I like, I will get in the elevator. I'm riding the elevator with Warren Beatty and Elaine May, and they're talking about Ishtar. I was like, wow. this is a dream job. <laughs> this is the most incredible job. And every day, I used to get to call and invite people to parties, and it was incredible. And it was my way of again, even though I was not in movies, of mm-hmm. pretending. I'm like one step away from being in a movie. I'm talking to all these people. Uh, While working for Peggy, that Frank Perry gave me a small part in a film he was doing. And that kind of made the rounds of the grill building because up to that point, nobody even knew that I was an actress. Mm -hmm. And so after that, you know, I started giving my resume around to people, and I gave my resume to Martin Scorsese's uh, assistant. Mm-hmm. And under special skills, one of my special skills was that I had a blood-curdling screen because I'd done a play <laughs> where I had to be murdered. So she said, Do you, "Is true you have a great screen because mm-hmm. we want to dub? We need to, you know, they need to dub screams for Barbara Hershey and." Le- 
And so I started having this like completely logical conversation about the scream. Mm-hmm. Great, go down at five, scream for Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I I do. And that leads to him inviting me to do you know what is called a loop group, mm-hmm. which is people that do background voices, crowd voices. Mm-hmm. And so I do that. I do the crowd voices. I'm part of that. And he just kept asking me to go up to the microphone and, you know, he said he liked my, my voice. Mm-hmm. And so I did, you know, and the next day I uh, went back to work and the assistant would call me every day. You know, Marty really likes your voice. He, can you come down and do another line? I'm, sure. Okay. <laughs> so I'd come down and, um, you know, I said, what are we, are we going to do the screaming? No, no, we'll get to that. He said, you think you could do this? We just need to dub this line. I'm like, yeah, sure. I could do that. So, you know, to me, it was like the best, the best slash worst kind of ham acting, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like I, at one point I had to, they handed me a line, you know, to be Jesus's mother. Like when they're dragging Jesus <laughs> with, with his, uh, on his cross, and the mother says, my son, my son, you know, it's, and there's all this crowd, You, and they're dubbing it, mm-hmm. and it's not like it's just going to be bold like that, because it's like there's crowd noises, and they're screaming, and they're yelling, and the, so I was like, how hard could it be, you know, <laughs> so you'd say, that's great, that's fantastic, I'd be like, that's it, that's it, you know, and I'd run upstairs, and I just, you know, to me, it was just like a great fun experience but each day I got more and more to do and that's what you know led to our through the process of working on the on on Last Temptation Mm -hmm. of talking about movies and it's kind of a similar thing to my grandfather you know he you know Marty was I always you know I credit like Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner because he was he was walking out the door Mm -hmm. and uh, he said "Um, I'll be right back I'm I'm just going to go wash up. And I said, that's right. I'm going to save, you know, France. You go wash up. And he swung <laughs> around and he said, the 2,000-year-old man, how do you know that album? And I said, oh, my God, it's my favorite routine, you know? like, And so literally stood in the doorway of the soundstage, the third floor of the Brill Building. We were doing a routine from the 2,000-year-old man. And then... He started talking about the 2013-year-old mm-hmm. man, about how he was on the album. And, and I think, there, again, there was just like, how would you know about these movies and these references? And so that was kind of a starting point of that, you know, we you know, we love movies. We love kind of comedy and things like that, irreverent. It was a great way to respectfully meet a director mm-hmm. that ironically I had tried to audition for, but, you know, never got past the casting person. That was the funny thing. And that has sort of been held true for me in many movies, you know. It sounds to me, listening to all of these stories, Eliana, like you always knew that you were destined for this, like there was never going to be a no, that you just kind of set your sights on what you wanted and you just kind of found, you just kind of found your way through. It doesn't sound like you had a big plan. It sounds like you were taking it minute to minute. My like, main, no, my main plan was like, eat it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I, like when I moved to New York, you know, I was 
starving. It's mm. like you, there. What option would there have been? You know, it's like I blame Dennis Hopper. What option would I have had? I had no money. What happens in a movie when a girl has no money? Yeah, but you weren't going to go be a waitress. You weren't going to go. You weren't going to get. I mean, you you worked for Peggy Siegel, but you stayed in the business. You weren't going to be distracted from what you wanted. Yeah, I mean, I knew. I mean, I wanted to be in show business probably again because of my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I wasn't, you know, uh, I, I mean, but I, I wanted to be in show business as much as I wanted to be an actress. Like, I don't know if I can say that I 100% believed that I was going to make it to become a successful actress. Somewhere along the way, mm-hmm. I did believe that. But in the beginning, like when I was working for Peggy Siegel, mm-hmm. and actually had like, wow, I have a little job, and I'm, I'm getting to escort Robin Williams around <laughs> and hang out with Norman Jewison. Like, mm-hmm. this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what I write about in the book, like, you know, my, my roommate, who became a successful screenwriter and was, you know, really a struggling actor, you know, like the idea that I was tasked to try to get a date for Nicolas Cage for Moonstruck, like that seemed pretty good compared to the past two years of my life, which seemed like struggling. You're not going to, you know, you may get kicked out on the street. You you don't know where the next meal is coming from. Mm -hmm. So I felt pretty happy to just land at a paying job that was not waitressing. Yeah. You know, like work where it could make me feel as if, okay, well, at least you're in show business. Like mm-hmm. maybe you won't become an actress, mm-hmm. but you're in show business. You're helping. And the more I started to work there, the more I started to volunteer, which is something I always say to people, you know, when you work for free, it's, you'd be shocked how many times people like, you know, will take you up on it. Mm-hmm. But I started asking my boss more and more. I said, you know, I'd love to, I said, you know, I'd love to write some of these press kits. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, I was thinking if I could call up some of these people and interview them for you and maybe just take notes about what they say. Mm-hmm. And she said, do you want to do that? And I said, yeah. And so the movie was Bright Lights, Big City. And I remember I was like, this is insane. I get to call up Spooky Kurtz now <laughs> and ask her all these questions and pretend like she's my friend. I'm like, I, I mean, I don't know if I really had a strong interest in writing the press kit or getting to, you know, talk to the people that were in the movie. But through doing that and then handing it in, you know, my boss was like, was saying, this is really good. And so... That was like the first time that, you know, I was working, I, I was working there and it was like, yeah, I'm just like a paid intern and assistant working for my boss. But eventually it started to be like, wow, they're actually using my press kit. They're sending that out to people. <laughs> so is there anybody? The of, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. What? I was going to say, is there, is, I was going to say, is there anybody who y- you are, starstruck with have been? Well, probably, I I mean, probably, which I write about, you know, the greatest person I ever met was, you know, Marlon Brando. Mm -hmm. That just was, you know, pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was, you know, just, 
just because he meant so much to me as an actor. I think he was, you know, our greatest actor, definitely. And he was a larger-than-life personality. And just to meet him, and I didn't even want to meet him um, because I didn't think I would be able to handle it, you know, just emotionally. And I, you know, when I met him, I, I literally just, I couldn't stop myself. I just... You know, I burst out crying, <laughs> and uh, it was such an amazing life lesson, which I write about in the book, because, you know, it was not only meeting Marlon Brando and getting to meet, you know, Marlon Brando, the man, and, and some of the, you know, personal stories that he said. It was, he gave me a life lesson. That's what the movies have given me. Mm-hmm. All, all the lessons that I've learned... Um, have been either from the movies or from film stars. Mm. Film stars, for me, came along, the right film star came along at the right time, you know, to give me some advice and that changed my life, whether it was Roddy McDowell or or Marlon Brando or, you know, or Albert Brooks. Mm. It just seemed like, this is bizarre, <laughs> like, you know, or Mike Nichols, you know, they just, and what I've always often thought is that I didn't have the confidence to believe in myself, mm-hmm. but if these people did, if Marlon Brando, who only met me one time, mm-hmm. believed in me, who was I to, to not, you know, to not agree with him? <laughs> and that's, you know, yeah. and it's the same thing about when, you know, when my pilot failed and I was sitting feeling sorry for myself in my house in L.A. And Brian De Palma said, you know, you, you've got something here. you got to stick with this. Mm-hmm. And even though I was like, it's not good, it's terrible. But I was like, all right, I can't let Brian De Palma down. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe that's in that way, that way of coping that is what's pushed me ahead. You know, people saw things in me. Martin Scorsese saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd say, you're going to be a director one day. And I'm like, really? I don't, hmm, I don't see that. But he saw it in me. Mm-hmm. So that's what's been interesting. I, I don't have that ability to see that in myself. But as long as other people have seen it. Uh, thank God for them. Because I'm and, not, you've I won't attached, them down. and you found the right people to attach yourself to that uh, has brought that out in you. So your journey has been seemingly random, but very deliberate, it seems, taking you where... So is there anything ahead of you, Ileana, that you still want to do that you haven't done yet? Well, I really want to focus on... Um, you know, I, I'm directing mm-hmm. uh, films that star women and that are about women, women's mm-hmm. stories. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're just not seeing enough role models. You know, I grew up and I was privileged to see movies, you know, with Faye Dunaway and mm-hmm. Jane Fonda and Sissy Spacek and, you know, Jessica Lange and mm-hmm. Sally Field. Jill Clayburgh. I mean, look mm-hmm. at me. I'm not running out of names. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the big key is when people say to you today, who do you like today? You're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, and it's not because they're not great 
actresses. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's so few of them that it's hard to have them roll off your tongue. Mm-hmm. But when I was a kid, you know, you like you saw Lady Sings the Blues, and you, you know, mm-hmm. you pretended you were Diana Ross. You mm-hmm. saw Faye Dunaway in Network, and you pretended that you could run a network. Mm-hmm. You saw Jane Fonda and China Syndrome, and you thought, you know, maybe mm-hmm. I'll be a reporter. Mm-hmm. You know, or nine to five, or tons of these movies. And we don't, girls don't see themselves in films anymore. Now they see Amy Schumer and they get to be a slut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not it. I know, again, like that's not, you know, that can be a part of it. I mean, I don't want to be this, you know, downer, this party. Pooper. No, she's hysterical. A, yeah. But it's like, if that's the only thing we see, mm-hmm. the woman as the man-eater, mm-hmm. the over-sex, you know, clown, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it needs a balance. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it needs a balance. I agree. And stories about older people, too, which is, you know, so many of the lessons that I've learned have been from people that are older. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, I, those are the people I want to I want to tell stories about. I love you know, that. the experience I had as a kid mm-hmm. of being a poor kid thrust in this, you know, uh, inner city theater group. Mm-hmm. You know, that was predominantly African American, mm-hmm. and what that experience was like, mm-hmm. and how that experience shaped me and formed me. Mm-hmm. You know, to be all you know those. That's when those were the glory days. That's when arts funded mm-hmm. created, a, you know, this biracial theater group, and they would bring us around. And you know, we sometimes like you know people threw bottles at us. It was, you know, it was intense. Like wow. it was intense sometimes. We were like kids. We were like peace and love, <laughs> the Rainbow Coalition. You know, and then it would be like get out of here, white people, and they like, throw bottles at us and. It was a really, really fantastic experience. Mm-hmm. And all of that has come from the privilege of of being in the movies, you know. I think that actresses more than actors use their their fame uh, to really, you know, voice things, whether it's they go whether they they go into politics or they speak out about things. But mm-hmm. it's like interesting you don't see so many women so many actresses you know have wanted to use their fame to to create a greater good and if for me i would that would be my ultimate wish Mm -hmm. god i wish i could use my fame and my success to help other people well jane fonda was all about that and um, Susan Sarandon yeah. certainly is as well. Yeah, Ileana, I have one Streisand. and Barbara Streisand. I have one more, one last question for you. Sure. This is a little off topic, but uh, do you have a guilty pleasure? Is there anything um, that you indulge yourself with that you feel a little guilty about? This is about everybody sharing their humanity. I'm just wondering if you have anything. Gosh, what is my I mean, it, for me, it's all about you know. I don't, I don't know if I call it guilty pleasures because it's you know I, I, I probably watch too many movies and read too many 
fanzines about movies. You know, I love I love reading uh, movie magazines from the '60s and '70s. Mm. They're really they're really kind of fun, and I love you know, celebrity autobiographies. Mm-hmm. I'm really sort of indulgent in uh, in what they are. But and uh, I mean, maybe I should read read more thoughtful books other than movie books. But I get so much out of movie books by you know hearing other people's, you know, hearing so many different people's stories, some of these actresses' stories. You know, the road of being an actress is certainly not the easiest. Most actresses, you know, you married three or four times, they end up alone, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm always looking for, I'm always looking for some sort of guidebook in, in some of these uh, celebrity, you know, books. But I guess that's sort of a, it's just a little bit of a guilty pleasure. A little bit, and that'll do. And, Eliana, I want to thank you so much for uh, spending this time with us and uh, sharing so much of yourself and um, for inspiring me. You do, you're like a Wonder Woman because you've, you've managed to... Because you are living your dream. You have manifested your dreams, and you continue to. And it's fantastic. And thank you for doing it, for spending... For all women, because yeah, you've got a lot more ahead of you, and I have a feeling you're going to, I don't even know how to articulate it, but I just know great things are coming from you, and I love the fact that you're women-centric and going to tell women's stories. Um, thank you for doing that. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's, it's, what, it's what changed my life as a kid, you know? So it's the, I'm selfishly <laughs> making movies. That I want to see. <laughs> Excellent. Well, good. Excellent. Keep making them. Thank you so much, Ileana. Okay. Thanks so much. So long. Take care. So, Justin, for me, I think the takeaway with Ileana is that there was never going to be anything that was going to stop her from from manifesting her dream. I mean, she knew she wanted to be in movies. She decided early on that she wanted the life her grandfather had, not the life her parents were living. And nothing was going to deter her from that path. And I think one of the maps to success is definitely having an end point. I don't think she had it all planned out along the way, but I think she had that end point of what she saw. And I think it was success in the movie business and nothing was going to stop her till she got it. And I think that's a necessary, that is one possible necessary ingredient for success. Do all successful people know that going in? I'm going to be successful and it's just a matter of the paths they take to get there, but they kind of know that. Does anybody just... that happens for everybody. Some people just fall into success, do you think? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it definitely happens both ways. I think there's definitely people that are like, I want to get here and they get there. And then there's other people that are like, I don't necessarily know what I want to do. And then they fall into it and then they're there. I wonder about that. I think, I think we'll discover more of that as we do, as we hear more and more of these stories. Um, It'll be interesting to see if there was anybody that didn't have any plan at all to be a famous person or to be a big celebrity. And it kind of happened to them because it seems so far the people we've talked to, well, then again, though, like Mike Nesmith, 
he didn't seem to have that kind of plan. No. He like wanted to make lettuce and tomato sandwiches <laughs> and, and play and plunk his guitar. So maybe it is possible to like get there without the big picture plan. Interesting. Anyway, Justin, um, thanks for traveling this uh, little journey with me tonight. This was a fun one. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to next time. So you can get Ileana's book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, on Amazon, and it's a great read. I was playing dumb through a lot of that interview because I wanted to get her to tell you guys the stories that are in there, but I've been reading it, and it's fabulous. I Blame Dennis Hopper, Ileana Douglas, available on Amazon. And you can find me um, on all social media at Vicki Abelson. So that basically works for... Facebook, for Twitter, for Instagram, for Google+. I make it really easy for you to find me. The only hard part is you have to be able to spell my name. No, there's no Y. No, there's no E. V-I-C-K-I. And Abelson, not spelt like the word Abel, but it's A-B-E-L-S-O-N. So come out and check me out. Follow me, friend me. I, I, I hate that follow. What is that follow? I'm not Jesus. Don't follow me. Friend me. And, you know, I hate this thing where on social media where they say your, your ratio should be way higher for how many people you follow on Twitter than follow you. Like, it's only good if you, like, are followed by, like, 15,000 people, but you only follow three. No. If you follow me, I'm going to follow you back. I want to interact with you. We are friends then. We, they might not call it friends on Twitter, but we're then friends. So anyway, so come find me on social media and I hope to find you back. So Justin, one of my very first relationships on Facebook was with a guy named Rick Smolke, and he immediately said, I want to help you. And so if you have anything you need done, please call Quick Impressions. In sh- they're right outside of Chicago, Quick Impressions, and please ask for Rick Smolke, and tell him that Vicky sent you, and I promise he's going to take, they are going to take such good care of you and match any price you'll get anywhere. Quick Impressions, Rick Smolke. And you can find them at quickimpressions.com. And that's quick, Q-U-I-K, no C, quickimpressions.com. Save the C for the Rick and ask for Rick. Looking for a great fall read? Pride and Prejudice meets House of Cards in Gina L. Mulligan's debut novel, Remember the Ladies. Remember the Ladies shines a light on women in American politics in the extravagant Gilded Age when the struggle for women's equality had just begun. In a historic election year, Remember the Ladies serves as a necessary reminder of the all-consuming passion of the dedicated women who fought for the right to vote. Remember the Ladies is available wherever books are sold or download it today on Amazon for just $3.99. Visit GinaMulligan.com for more info on this popular book club selection. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Oh, Vicky, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind, hey,
am Vicki Abelson. Please join me for The Road Taken, celebrity maps to success for those of us still seeking ours. Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 Central, 9 p.m. Eastern on Conversations Radio Network.